Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their stories so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. This episode features a conversation with Kyle Morgan, class of 2002, a senior vice president and senior relationship manager for Key Private Bank in Buffalo, New York. Our conversation touches on a lot of topics, from starting at a Commonwealth campus, the Department of Economics, aviation, and customer-centered values in finance and banking, as well as life in mid-sized cities. You can read Kyle's full bio and get a more detailed breakdown of the topics in the show notes on your podcast app. Now, let's get right into our chat with Kyle, following the gong. Thank you, Kyle, for joining me today here on Following the Gong. I think this episode coming about is a great example of the power of LinkedIn. You and I connected at some point along the way, and we got chatting about the show. And here you are recording with me today. And sometime down the road, you, the listener, are hearing our interview today. So thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Sean. And uh, greetings from a, a very snowy and cold Buffalo, New York today. Well, I think that gives you a little bit of insight into the time of the year that we're recording this. If you're listening later, speaking of snow, it's snowing here in Happy Valley, or it has been snowing a lot recently, but you didn't start at University Park, Kyle. I want to know how you came to choose Penn State, where you started at, what it was like at the campus you were at, and how you came to be in the Shire Honors College. Yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, I actually started my Penn State career at the Du Bois campus uh, for my first year and uh, really chose to go there uh, primarily due to proximity to home. Uh, it, was, it was quite quite a lot of my friends were going there and I uh, thought it'd be a nice, easy transition. Uh, sort of got into uh, a couple of different things when I was there and, and realized that, you know, to sort of do what I wanted to uh, in the major I was pursuing at the time, uh, was kind of best to uh, to move on to University Park, uh, which I did then for my second, third, and fourth years. Uh, but uh, you know, it was uh, it was a nice, easy transition. I think I got a really good, good you know first year at the Du Bois campus, a little bit of smaller class size, and uh, you know made that that transition to school uh, just a little bit easier. Uh, ended up coming to University Park uh, thinking I was going to be a hotel management major, and uh, you know. For whatever reason, my second year, I, I sort of stepped into some economics classes, really enjoyed those, found that I, I, I kind of liked the theory and the practice of the science, and uh, just decided to, to major in that. And, and that's what I sort of, uh, sort of you know, stuck to for the next four years, uh, also completing a, a second major in political science. But uh, I was actually, during that second year, uh, approached by a gentleman by the name of David Shapiro, who was a professor of economics and used to uh, run the economics program uh, in the department, and uh, just asked my uh, my interest in participating in the department honors program. Uh, so talked about it my, my sophomore year, and uh, then uh, was able to, uh, to become part of the honors college in my junior year. And uh, was really, you know, one of the highlights of my my time in college was the uh, was the economics honors program, which you complete as a senior, and uh, really uh, uh, an experience that that was you know sort of changed my life and let me uh, meet a lot of really good people and uh, you know further my education. In the questionnaire, you specifically mentioned the cohort of the fellow scholars in the economics program. Can you talk a little bit more about them and what made that group so special for you? Yeah, so I think it was, um, you know, a little bit different in the fact that uh, when I was going through the Honors College, uh, there were just a few individual departments that had their own sort of internal honors program. Uh, and we actually, the, the cohort that I was with, uh, had classes together for the entire day, Tuesday and Thursday. But there were about 15 of us. 
Uh, and, you know, you just got to share a heck of a lot because, you know, uh, not only was it the class experience, but, you know, some of the, the things that we did outside presenting our research to other colleges, really being able to do that as a, as a group and together, you know, really uh, just, you know, made the experience so much better. It also really built some lifelong friendships. I mean, it was like having a, a small college within a college. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that I, I still stay in touch with. Uh, you know, last night when I was thinking about this, I went back and looked on my Facebook page of some of our pictures and uh, brought back a lot of good memories. But it was a really exceptional opportunity to be able to spend that much time with folks of similar interest and to have that much interaction with the faculty. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that time was certainly devoted to writing our thesis. But, uh, you know, having, you know, eight credits together during the week, we studied a lot of different items and different areas and, and uh, subject matter within economics and political science and statistics. And it, it really just was, you know, the most amazing experience you could have ever asked for. Speaking of that thesis, do you recall what you wrote yours on and what your findings were? Sure. So uh, I had a what people would call probably a very dry thesis uh, title. Uh, and part of this cohort was we peer reviewed all of our uh, all of our you know findings and you know the final copies and everything like that. And they said you have to come up with a, a better topic. So uh, I finally did, and the title actually came out to be "Upswings, Downturns, and Happy Landings: The U.S. Airline Industry in the Business Cycle." And what it really did was try to understand an industry on the macro level and how it was affected by, you know, various stages of economic expansions and contractions. So uh, the findings were it's a very disproportionate industry uh, when times are great. You know, the aviation business is always good. Sometimes time is, again, better than, you know, a, you know, a benchmark. Uh, and they suffer disproportionately in downturns. That might sound well, pretty common sense, but we sort of picked it apart and, and understood different phases of it and uh, came up with a couple of good findings, I think. And if you're an economics major now as a scholar, I'm sure you could take a, a second look at that, especially in the first two years of the COVID pandemic and the ups and downs that the airline industry has felt first with shutdowns and then things opening and then second waves with different variants. That's another one that you see constantly kind of having that fluctuation. So that does make a lot of sense. It, it does. And uh, if anybody can go find a copy of it and dust it off, it might be uh, good to uh, <laughs> to steal some research if you want. <laughs> and if you don't know, if you're listening, all the honors theses from, I believe, before 2010 are in hard copy somewhere in either, I want to say, Paterno Library, maybe the fourth or fifth floor. So uh, you can check the library's website for confirmation on that, uh, but go check that out if that is something that might help you in your own thesis or from other episodes that you've heard thesis descriptions about. Now, what was it specifically, Kyle, about the airline industry? Because there's so many topics you could pick from in economics. What was it about that specific industry that you wanted to look at? Sure. So I've always sort of been fascinated by flight. And uh, when I was about 16 years old, I started taking flying lessons. So I uh, I was actually able uh, to, to get my pilot's license and uh, really thought for a period of time in my life, that was the sort of professional career I'd like to follow. Uh, for a lot of different reasons, I, I decided to just take it on as a hobby. But uh, I, I can, you know, go back and, and think of some of my, my most fond memories or spending time with 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 family doing things around aviation. Uh, and, and it was just something I really, really wanted to do. So when I turned 16, I think the first thing I asked for was, could I please have flying lessons? And and luckily, I was was able to do that and uh, sort of been a passion of mine ever since. And that was the, the really nice thing about sort of the support I got within the economics honors program was, you know, when you're thinking about writing your thesis, you know, obviously you want to you want to bring your discipline um, forward. But you also want to write something that you care and you're very passionate about. So this was something that was pretty interesting for me to do. And, uh, you know, it didn't seem like so much of a, of a task whenever you really love what you're working with. And I think there's some really good advice there in what you just said, Kyle, for those listening who are in the process of trying to figure out their thesis topic is find something that you are really passionate about within that discipline. Because when you're in that 11th hour and you're trying to push through at the end, being a topic that you care a lot about is very helpful. Uh, I speak from my own experience. I'm sure you could attest to that as well. 
Absolutely. And uh, like I say, you know, if, if you if you enjoy it, you're going to have a passion to do the research. You're going to have a passion to work hard on it. And it's it's always just going to result, I think, in a in a better final product. Uh, and I think you can even say that about, you know, when, when you go out there and you're, you're thinking about your first job or you're thinking about a career change. I think all those things, you know, love what you do. Uh, everything else will follow. Well, I think that's a perfect segue there. Way to, I appreciate you teeing me up, Kyle. <laughs> so you talked, you have a passion for aviation, but, and you even consider going into aviation as a career, but you didn't. You actually went into banking and wealth management. So, how did you discover that as a specific? career path that you could pursue? Well, it, it was a little bit of, uh, uh, it was a little bit of a circumstance of, of time. I, uh, during my, my, my senior year was really trying to think about wh- what do I want to do? Uh, I've, I'm going to have my degree finished. My thesis will be done. Uh, I've got for, for lack of a better word, uh, an undergraduate degree that can let me do a heck of a lot of different things. You know, the nice thing about economics being a social science, you can pursue graduate school. You can go out into the financial field. You can think about, you know, doing more research. Uh, and, you know, I graduated in the spring of 2002. Uh, and that was one of the worst times in the world for the U.S. airline, the, the global airline industry. And there were not a ton of opportunities. So thankfully, I had, you know, a really good, solid undergraduate education at Penn State that allowed me to sort of change gears a little bit. And I've always been interested in finance. I've always been interested in economic forecasting, things like that. So making that sort of ever so slight pivot to sort of go into the financial world wasn't tough. Uh, it wasn't what I necessarily thought I was going to do, uh, but it turned out to be really great. And, uh, you know, my first job, uh, you know, right out of school was working for a, a really large investment company in their capital markets group. So great training on how the economic markets functioned. Uh, and, you know, I like to say, uh, is, is, a, is a young guy working for a big company like that, I got to do a lot of travel. So that uh, sort of uh, took care of the travel bug and, and still kept me on airplanes quite a bit. Well, I'm going to throw a curveball here for you then. Um, how have you seen things change and what are your economic forecasts around? And obviously, this is not any kind of investment advice. want to make that very clear here. But just generally, what are your sense on the long term changes around business travel? Sure. So that's an incredibly interesting question. And, you know, as you and I are sitting talking here today on the 25th of January, we've had uh, probably the rockiest January in recent times as far as the markets are concerned. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. It's, you know, it's it's uncertainty around what the Fed is going to do. It's it's potential issues in Ukraine and Russia and NATO's response. Uh, All of it really boils down to uncertainty. Markets don't like uncertainty. Uh, our 401ks don't like uncertainty. So it's uh, it's certainly something for us to to sort of be concerned about. And, and how does that really translate into everyday lives? How does that translate into everybody's industry? And you specifically ask about business travel. Uh, I mean, you know, when you think about it, over the last three years as a society, we've been forced to digitize meeting. And to a certain end, if you look at a lot of the sectors of the economy, they've rebounded differently. Uh, the aviation business, or specifically the airline industry, has rebounded principally on leisure travel. People have wanted to get out of their houses. They've wanted to, to do things. They've had some disposable income to do that with. So the, re- the, you know, the recovery has uh, really come from the American family for the aviation business. It hasn't come from you know the the S&P 500 composite makeup companies spending more on business travel. And in fact, that is at record lows of where it was 20 years ago. Uh, I still don't think you can ever uh, replace in our business a face-to-face meeting with a client, whether they're across town or they're across the world. But we've been able to, to really think about, you know, how much travel do we need? And if you think about the economics of aviation, you know, the majority of the profit of when that Boeing 777 takes off comes from business travelers. And that's still way down. It is hurting the industry. Remember how much stimulus money has gone into the aviation industry, how much has gone into the airlines. And they're still really, you know, benefiting from that. Uh, 
there is going to be a time that we have to reassess how much business travel does does this industry support and it will be less than it was five or 10 years ago. Does that recover over the next seven or eight years? I bet you it does, but there's going to be a time here that there's sort of a disconnect there. And, and that's why you still see just ever so slightly a little bit of softness in, in all of those aviation airlines. You got me thinking back to econ. I think it's 102 and 104 where, you know, I think airlines are always a textbook example of price discrimination, right? And business uh-huh. travelers, oh, we have this meeting next week and we got to get this presentation and you you book your trip and you're kind of in a crunch. So, you know, there's a price premium versus the family that's booked their Disney trip six months out so they can get their fast passes uh, scheduled and everything. And so the, the flights are cheaper. So that made sense that you you can't replicate a vacation on Zoom, but you can do business meetings on Zoom. And actually, we're recording this. You are at home. You've got your cats there. I'm at one of my work from home days here. I'm in my home office with I've got my rescue mutts behind me. So certainly a different flavor on even how we're engaging alumni uh, for for you students in in this. Uh, we would not have done this two years ago. So yeah, certainly some probably, innovation. Probably five there. years ago, we would have done this over a cup of coffee or something, you know. Probably. And, and a lot of the, the technology has advanced to make this more feasible. Um, now, going back in time a little bit again, you wrote in your questionnaire that you actually ended up in Boston after you graduated. You referenced working for a really big firm. Can you tell us what that experience was like? You went from being in Dubois and in University Park State College, which are both pretty small towns. What was it like going to, you know, a top 10 size city with its own unique culture and character up in up in Boston? It was one of the greatest things I ever did. Uh, And I'll I'll walk it back just a little further. When I left Penn State, uh, the first stop I made was uh, my first job was actually in Pittsburgh. And uh, I was there for about 18 months. And uh, my boss at the time uh, came down and said, you know, hey, you've been doing a really great job for us. Uh, We want to offer you a promotion. Uh, Usually when these things happen, we like to send you somewhere else. And there was an option for me to go to, uh, I believe it was uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, or uh, or to go to Boston. I never spent much time in either city, but I thought, you know, what the heck, let's go to Boston. And I'd like to say there was a whole lot more thought in it than that, other than uh, I thought Boston would be a, a great place to be. Uh, I made the move there in 2003, and it was one of the best things I ever did. Uh, I lived there for over 15 years, uh, a fantastic city, wonderful people, uh, and, and really, you know, uh, they call Boston New York with an inferiority complex, but I uh, I sincerely loved it. Uh, the people there are some of the greatest you'll ever find, uh, and being in sort of that type of an environment, dealing, you know, with clients that were, you know, you know, from from very small individual investors all the way up to, to corporations where you were literally managing billion dollar accounts for them. Uh, it was a great mix. It was a great city to grow up in. And uh, I like to say when I moved up there, I helped the Red Sox break their curse. But, uh, you know, I, I guess that'll be left for the historians to do. Well, certainly, uh, at least if not causation, certainly a, co- a nice correlation there for, for any for any Sox fans listening. So you can thank Kyle for that uh, run of titles across all of the different teams in the Boston uh, sports scene in the past uh, two decades here. Now, as we're talking, you're no longer in Boston. You actually moved to another city that's having its own uh, sports renaissance, if you will, with the Buffalo Bills in Western New York. What precipitated that move? Well, the, the 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 move was precipitated by a little bit of a career change. But when I was living in Boston, I was very fortunate to have clients all over the country and, and all over the world. Uh, one of my uh, best clients who actually ended up uh, being a, a really great mentor to me was a gentleman who lived here in Buffalo. And uh, I got to you know visit him you know, multiple times a year for literally a decade. And, you know, you get to, with business travel, I think, get to learn about a city, get to learn about its people, a little bit about what makes it tick. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I always thought, you know, this is a great little city. Uh, And I shouldn't use the word little. It's a great city. Uh, And I, I always enjoyed my time here. Uh, we had some some changes that were that were taking place at my job in Boston, and and coincidentally, about the same time, uh, a friend of mine uh, let me know that uh, 
the firm that I work for now, which is called KeyBank, uh, was really rebuilding and and ramping up uh, their their wealth management presence. And uh, their uh, their sort of wealth management arm is called Key Private Bank, and that's where that's where I work. And they uh, had recently completed a really large merger for the bank that, that acquired a company called First Niagara Financial Group, which was a, a, a large regional bank that was based here in, in Western New York. So Key came in, you know, the 11th largest bank in the country and was really trying to make, you know, all of Western New York a, a, a pretty big focus market for it. So, along with myself and a couple other folks from across the country, we were recruited to come in and uh, we've been at it for about four years now and it's been, been a great success. But really what, what brought me to Buffalo was, uh, you know, the people, uh, just a, a fantastic city to live in. Uh, you know, we're close to a lot of different things. In normal times, you're, you're a hop, skip and a jump from Toronto, which is a, a great and wonderful city. Uh, and as you mentioned, we have a, a, a great uh a great sports culture here with the Bills and the Sabres, uh, the collegiate teams. You know, we also have, um, you know, a little bit of a renaissance going on. You know, our downtown core is really expanding. Uh, we have new businesses coming in focused in healthcare and on technology. Uh, it's it's a younger city. It's really growing. Um, I look at it, you know, from living in Pittsburgh and now living in Buffalo. Buffalo is just a few years behind. And if you've been to Pittsburgh, you've seen the real renaissance that's taken place there. Uh, you know, that's happening here, too. And is sort of a, a guy who's in his 40s and uh, part of, you know, the, the, the financial market here in, in Western New York. It's fun to be a part of that uh, from a commercial perspective and, and also helping our individual clients that are coming from all over the world to this relatively new uh, new experience for them here in Western New York. Uh, and, and there's a reason that, that the population is, is starting to grow and it's because people are liking it here, they're staying here and finding it's a really great city to raise a family and, uh, and sort of be part of. Which again, going back to our conversation around business travel versus remote, you know, that's certainly an option, you know, to look at if you can do a job remotely, which I think a lot of our scholars are going to be seeing those opportunities as corporate roles shift in that way you can work from anywhere and that includes settling down in a, in a town like buffalo in addition even if the, the company's not located there so you heard it from kyle great option to consider i think also great shout outs for pittsburgh and i'm a little familiar with cincinnati from my time in kentucky also a great kind of city in that same vein of those slightly smaller than new york philly boston towns uh for you to consider and a lot of big companies headquartered there as well now kyle in your answer, in a lot of your answers, you keep saying words like client and people and communities. When we think of banking, the first thing we think of is lots of numbers, spreadsheets, graphs, checkbooks, ATMs, Bitcoin, all these different things. But without the people involved, the numbers don't really mean anything. So can you talk about your role and your day to day, if there's such a thing, as a VP and a relationship manager for key private bank and working in this specific type of financial role. Sure. And, and you're absolutely right. This is a people's business because, you know, everybody can give you an ATM machine. Everybody can print you off a credit card, give you a checkbook. Anybody generally can can do all those day-to-day -day functions for you. But it's it's something sort of special when you get to work with a client uh, who maybe maybe they started a business when they were young. Maybe they had a really great idea. Uh, and you really get to follow them through their journey in life because their life won't get less complicated. Uh, you know, we always think about, uh, you know, how we help our clients grow and thrive. And, and our typical clients are, are individuals who have really done well for themselves. Uh, you know, when I, I reference Key Private Bank, we are sort of a boutique bank within Key Bank, which is itself part of Key Corp. And while we're the 11th largest bank in the country, what we do is we try to be a hometown bank in all the cities that we're large in. And that's in cities like Buffalo, like Portland, Maine, like Detroit, like Cleveland, Ohio, like Anchorage, like Seattle. Those are cities that we really have a big presence in and it's where our home is. And we try to operate as a local community bank in each of those cities. While we still have these global reaches that we have and, and the power of being such a large, large bank, we really want to be bankers to our community. So it is it is really kind of a, a people business in the fact that we want to help folks, you know, grow their business. We want to help them plan for their future. Uh, we want to help them mitigate any of the little sort of sidesteps that can happen, uh, whether that's issues with with children, with marriages, with 
with taxes, with things of that nature. We're really here to be consultants for the entire lifespan of an individual. Uh, so how does that look on a day-to-day basis? That's, that's the, I guess, the, the really interesting question. And every client is different. I mean, it can be an individual. I work with a lot of institutions such as nonprofits, uh, you know, think of higher education institutions that have endowments that people have donated to. And how do you invest those funds properly? And how do you make sure that they're there to, to, to push the mission forward of a, of a nonprofit, of a institution that's, you know, specializing in, in different types of education? So all of those things uh, really lead back to what we do. And that's really listening to people, understanding where they want to go financially and giving them the tools to do that. That's in a nutshell what a day-to-day life is. Now, that, that, there's a lot of tools in the toolbox to make that happen. But that's sort of what we do on a day-to-day basis is really sort of try to customize a roadmap or, for lack of a better word, guide the journey for the client, uh, help a family get where they want to go, help a nonprofit get where they want to go. And as long as we can be a partner doing that, we're helping them. We're helping the communities we serve, too. So for the scholars listening, Kyle, what would you recommend that if they want to go into what you're doing or or similar roles that are heavy customer service, heavy client and relationship management focused, what are some opportunities or skills that you would recommend that they start working on now? Obviously, sure. probably Excel is a good skill to know, but particularly around the people and what we might call the soft skills, what would you recommend that they start looking at and how they can start developing those? Sure. So uh, I'll say something to sort of my fellow economics, finance majors. When you're an undergrad, the best thing you can do is with your electives, take some take some interesting classes, take a foreign language, study some Pennsylvania history, think about some theater, some art, some film classes, really try to be as diverse of an individual as you can when you're when you're coming out of school. That really goes a long way with a lot of our recruiters. I know it does at Key and my other firm, you know, making yourself stand out a little bit. And really in those first couple of years, when you're you're out in your first job, whether you're an analyst, uh, whether you're doing something at a big accounting firm, you went to work for an investment bank, you've decided to go into, you know, financial services at a, at a brokerage house or something. Those first couple of years. Finding a good mentor, which which I did. Uh, also a Penn State graduate uh, from the 1980s, but finding a really good mentor, uh, somebody that can really, you know, not just teach you the technical aspects of the job, because I promise you, you're going to pick that up quicker than you ever think. So don't worry so much about that. But it's finding out how to deal with people, uh, understanding where they want to go. Uh, and more than anything, just being able to listen, understand where, 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 where they want to be, what do they want to do? What's the desired outcome? And you're going to have a you're going to have a set of tools to be able to do that. Uh, so I think the best thing that any scholar can do is when you go out and you get that first job, and you're going to have some scholars that go to really big firms and, and small firms. But the unique thing is, is they're going to go to good firms, and there are going to be individuals there who want to help that next generation really be able to grow and create and succeed. And finding somebody that you can be lifelong friends with and work with them and learn this business is the best thing that you can ever do. And uh, it's something you can't study. It's something you can't learn. It's just something you have to try. You have to do. So mentoring is a very common theme of this entire podcast show. How would you, in your experience, recommend that scholars and particularly those who are interested in this line of work for those econ, for those finance, for those accounting majors, how would you recommend that they go about finding a mentor in that internship or that first job? Well, I think the first thing you can do is, uh, depending on the size of the company you go to, a lot of them, like Key Corp, have very formal mentorship programs where when when new individuals will come into the bank, either as an intern or a or a, a new hire, uh, you're sort of assigned, for lack of a word, a, a buddy or a friend that can help you uh, learn uh, all the ins and outs of the bank or the firm from technical systems all the way up how to run the Xerox machine. So, you know, you have to you find somebody like that to, to help you understand all the all the big picture things, but also how how that nine to five or that day to day works. Uh and, and going back to my last answer, if, if there's not a formal program at the firm you go to, you know, even if it's somebody in HR, when you were interviewing that you sort of clicked with, or one of the, the folks who have just recently gone through the same thing that you have, 
just uh, just just pal up with them, uh, become friends, uh, go out, grab a cup of coffee, grab a drink after work, and really sort of just lay it on the table that you know, hey, I, I I've I've noticed how successful you've been. Uh, you seem really happy in what you do. I'd like to replicate that. How can I learn from you? To, to have a similar experience. So I think it's it's mostly personality matching. Find somebody that you get along with that's been successful and and really just attach yourself to them. Even if you're ever so much a bit of a pain, uh, they're going to still do it for you because they've been in the exact same shoes that you've been in. And I've found without question, uh, I've only worked for two firms, but they've, they've both been pretty big, big firms. Without question, there's going to be some formal mentoring opportunities if you go to a larger place. Take every advantage of that you can. If you're going to go to a smaller firm or you're going to even go to graduate school, find somebody who sort of traveled your path before. Become good friends with them. It's the best career decision you can ever make. Absolutely. And I noticed you mentioned the Xerox machine. Definitely, even those little things like that are very helpful to learn. Whenever we have somebody join the college, I always make sure they know how to operate the coffee machine because it's a little it's a little challenging, I think, for, <laughs> at first um, to to make sure that you do it right, um, especially if you're not a, a trained barista. And, and if you're if you're going to go into finance, you're going to need a ton of coffee your first two years, no matter what job you have. So, <laughs> and I imagine also the consultants um, would probably tell you the same thing for the Deloitte's and the McKinsey's of the world too. Yeah. So going back a couple of questions here, you mentioned that you work with both individuals who are high net worth, you work with some businesses, you work with nonprofits. What is it like balancing those portfolios? Are there any similarities and any differences between working with those different types of clients? Sure, there are. Uh, the risk tolerance of individuals and institutions can be very similar, uh, meaning, you know, how much exposure do they want to the markets versus sort of safe and secure investments? And it all still goes back to understanding where your client wants to go. It can be a family that has been successful and they want to grow their wealth for generations. And there's a, there's a customized plan that we put in place for that. Uh, and that's to, to make wealth last, not just for an individual's children, but for grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and, and maybe even a charity that they'd like to, to endow. Uh, if you take a step to the side, it's actually very similar when you work with a nonprofit. Uh, because they're really doing the same thing. They're, they're receiving bequests. They're, you know, having, you know, operations, operational profits, things of that nature. And they put a plan in place of, of what they want to do in the future. And it's really our job to help them get there. So you think about nonprofits, maybe even in the healthcare sector that, that are really out there, you know, trying to stay on the cutting edge of whether it's, uh, you know, providing healthcare services to, to inner city uh, disadvantaged individuals, or they're, they're a large cancer research institution, uh, it's still pretty similar, you know, understanding what the client wants to do and how they'd like to get there. It's really then our job to get them there. So as I said, we always have a lot of tools in our bag to do that. So there's a heck of a lot of similarities between individuals and for lack of a better word, institutions and how they how they want to move forward. It's very different from a tax structure, from an investment structure, from an amount of risk that you can take with an individual versus an institution. But, you know, the fundamentals are there. And for for folks that are going out to, to start in this world and in this career path, you know, the best thing you can always do is listen to your client, put a plan in place, stick to it, and you'll have the desired outcome you, if you want. When you don't listen to your client or you try to sell them something or you, you know, you deviate from a long term plan, that's when you have trouble. And that's when you don't really don't really have the desired outcomes that you want. You mentioned quite a few things in the last couple of answers. And I'm curious, you know, tax codes change, technology changes, industries evolve, things that were great investments before, maybe not so great now. New things are coming on the horizon, like cryptocurrencies and, and different green technologies. How do you continue your professional development well after your days at Penn State so that you can stay on top of your game, add to your toolkit, and best serve your clients? Sure. It's a great question because there's there's nothing as sure as change, especially in, in the markets that we're living in today. You see so many different things uh, changing. Uh, Fifteen years ago... Uh, People didn't even, you know, if you would say, what is ESG investing? They, they wouldn't understand, um, you know, it's environmental, social, uh, social responsibility and governance. And, and that's uh, that's a big change. Um, you know, the tax changes, they happen every year, sometimes 
more than once a year. So, you know, being involved in some different professional organizations, uh, working for an institution like I work for, where, you know, we have dedicated individuals who are following all of those changes and bringing the folks that are out in the field, such as myself, those really good ideas that we can translate uh, to our clients is it's paramount in delivering the right experience. Uh, But what I would say to folks who are, are thinking about this, you can never sort of stop learning because if, you know, in 1980, we would have gone out and bought our clients uh, a portfolio of 50 of the largest stocks in the country. Uh, those 50 largest stocks in the country are very different today than they were in 1980. They're very different than they were in 2000. They're very different than they were in 1990. So, you know, really staying on top of things, you know, making sure that you're in tune with the markets, that you're you're doing the requisite amount of, of sort of research into the different tax situations and understanding that, you know, nothing is as sure as change. But making sure that you're on top of it always is the best way to deliver the best outcome for your client. Uh, There's a lot of ways to do that. It's, again, learning from your peers, from your company, getting into civic organizations. Uh, I belong to uh, an organization called the uh, Association of Mergers and Acquisitions Advisors. Uh, so getting into the folks and in, in institutions like that, where they're constantly bringing you new ideas, understanding what's going on in Washington and around the world, that's the best way to really deliver the best outcome for your client. So you mentioned that professional association. You're really involved in in the profession. How did you get involved in that? And more importantly, why do you take on that extra work to volunteer with these kind of professional groups? Well, I think it makes you uh, a more well-rounded advisor for your client. You're, you're you're sort of specializing in certain areas, and when you when you, for lack of a better word, when you go out there and and you start working with individuals, you're always going to gravitate sort of toward a certain type of situation, whether that's uh, you know helping business owners, whether it's helping institutions, but really thinking about there, you know, what really can I learn. What can I sort of be an expert at that can translate into a good outcome or a good knowledge base for my clients? And one of the reasons that I decided to to sort of get involved in an organization that specifically helps with uh, individuals who might have grown a business, uh, maybe it was a startup and then they went through an IPO and now, you know, they, they grew this business out of their garage and now, you know, they could buy a small country. Uh, <laughs> uh, finding and, and really thinking about the topics that, that are important to them. Uh, many, many times it's taxes. Uh, many times it's thinking about how to preserve wealth and pass it on to my kids and grandkids and really figuring out those sort of answers and really, you know, having an association of individuals that are doing that, seeing multiple situations across the globe. Uh, really helps us a great deal in the amount of knowledge we're able to gather. And, you know, whatever situation that we find ourselves in, it's also a really nice peer group to go out and ask for resources and to see how you can best help your client through maybe they've been in a situation that's similar before. And then in addition to your professional community across the country, you're also heavily involved in your community in Buffalo. Can you tell us what you do and why you do what you do? Sure. You know, I was, um, you know, have always had a, a soft spot in my heart for the city of Buffalo, even when I wasn't living here and I was living in New England. Uh, but when I moved here, uh, you know, it didn't take very long to realize that this is the place that I hope to put down roots for the remainder of, of, of my time. And the city is really growing. Uh, it's, uh, you're going to see it in a lot of travel magazines. You're going to see it in a, in a New York times, uh, dining out, uh, article, uh, but it's important that we realize, I think, that, you know, not everybody in the city of Buffalo and in Western New York is is sort of sharing in those same headline successes. Uh, you know, we're still a city that is recovering from Bethlehem Steel shutting down in 1984. Uh, we've lost, you know, roughly a third of the population uh, in the last 30 years, and it's just starting to come back. So. There's a lot of people that maybe aren't sharing in all of the the success that the city is having on a, on a macro level right now. Uh, so I was really pleased um, a little while back to get involved with an organization called Evergreen Health Services that first started off as the Buffalo AIDS Project. And uh, really, it went out there and tried to help individuals that were suffering with, with HIV and AIDS at the time in the 1980s and 90s. Uh, but it's really turned into an organization that provides primary health care, dental health care, mental health care, helping folks get their first house, really sort of a, a catch-all organization that's out there trying to make a difference 
uh, in the lives of people of Western New York, specifically sort of folks here in Buffalo, because it is it, it is easy to get left behind. There's a lot of folks that have had some circumstances that you know we could never even in a million years, you and I sitting here, uh, understand or, 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 or candidly even fathom. Um, and, and they're a vital part of this city too. And they need uh, all the resources that we as a, a collective here and, and provide and and being able to 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 serve with this organization, you know, a little bit first as a volunteer, and and now I uh, I'm on the board of directors of their foundation to really help them grow. I've seen the good things that they've done, um, the good things they've done historically, the good things they're doing today, helping people who've had a tough time, uh, whether it was with substance abuse, whether it was uh, suffering from discrimination because of their sexual orientation or or anything like that. Uh, it's 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 just a fantastic organization, and it's one of many in this city uh, that's really trying to help those of us, uh, you know, who just uh, haven't had the the opportunities or are trying to to change their life. And being able to be a part of that, uh, it, it's probably one of the most rewarding things I've done in, in many many years. That's great, and I think that is really a continuation of the Honors College's mission and vision. So that is great to hear. Now, before we get into the reflective questions, one thing I wanted to ask about, you mentioned earlier you're a licensed pilot. Do you still get out to fly? And when you were a student, was there any for I maybe mean, there's students who are interested in picking this up or who are active, you know, getting their license as well? Were you able to practice and fly and get hours when you were a student? I did. Yeah. I, uh, I probably didn't fly as much as I should have when I, when I was younger uh, and in college, but I did. I, uh, I got to go out and practice. I got to use the University Park Airport a little bit, uh, rented some airplanes and, and flew all over Pennsylvania and New York and, and Maryland. Um, today, I still get to fly quite a bit. Uh, one of my flight instructors is, uh, is a gentleman that I've been lifelong friends with that lives in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And uh, every year, uh, take a little bit of a trip out there, and we always go flying and, and have a lot of fun together. Uh, so yeah, it's it's something that that it's a lifelong passion of mine. It's a great pursuit, and it's always something that you continue to learn because just as the financial markets are always changing, uh, you know, the technology of aviation is too. So it's always something that you can keep up with, learn a new skill, and uh, there, there's nothing nothing cooler than. Uh, getting up there and, and seeing the world below you and, and flying an airplane and, and just having a great time. And, uh, just, you know, one of the things I, I, I can't encourage people enough uh, to go out and try if you have an opportunity, the, uh, the amount of freedom that, that it allows you to have and uh, experience, it's, it's just it's not rivaled in anything else. Well, as Penn Staters, I think we know a little bit about Unrivaled. So you heard it from Kyle about going out and checking out the blue skies. And uh, I know it can be a bit of an investment, but maybe, you know, work with folks like Kyle to see if you can uh, financially swing that if that's a hobby that you are interested in pursuing. Now, Kyle, in our now we're going to kind of pivot to the last section of our conversation today. What would you say is your biggest success to date? I would say... In my professional life, it's it's definitely taking some organizations that serve the greater good of our communities to the next level. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough to to work with an organization that uh, helps folks uh, sort of in their last last days uh, in in Chautauqua County here in New York State, um, and they were an organization that you know had always done a, a fantastic job of helping individuals that were facing, you know, really tough decisions. Um, it was sort of a hospice-like organization. And um, they sort of came to us with an idea of how they wanted to build a residential inpatient facility to, to help folks that maybe didn't have a home or didn't have loved ones that could look after them in, in those last days. And, you know, really taking this organization from just an idea on, on a piece of paper to actually a year ago, seeing them put shovels in the ground and build this building and take care of people. I've got to say that's probably the one that strikes home the most. It's uh, it's benefiting a lot of people. Uh, it's allowing them to have a lot of dignity and a lot of hope. And uh, I think that's the powerful thing that we can do in my industry. Um, you know, you're going to watch a lot of movies that talk about the, the Porsches and the expense accounts and the, and the bottles of wine and finance. And, uh, you know, that's not all it is. It is actually getting out there and helping individuals in our community. We have a, a mission. We have a duty to do that. 
And uh, I just think it's amazing when you can see it happen. That's great. And I think you've provided a lot of insight kind of contrary to kind of the Hollywood perspective. You think of things like the Wolf of Wall Street, which is a very probably skewed perspective on things. What would you say is your biggest transformational learning moment and what you learned from that experience? I think the transformational part of that is understanding that, you know, if you take things, for lack of a better word, one step at a time and trying to leap to where you want to go, you're going to have a really good outcome because we had a lot of twists and turns in this project that we assisted on. Uh, there was a family that was going to originally donate a lot of a lot of the capital. They decided not to. And now we're left with, oh, gosh, what do we do? So, you know, if you don't follow a methodic process, you might not be able to react in those situations the best way. In this situation, we were able to do so. And we found other ways to sort of get it done. So I think to answer your question, you know, just staying focused, understanding what the end of the game is, but realizing you don't have to get to A to Z in one jump, that you can go from A to B to C to D and so on. You get there. Uh, you know, you can't be all things to all people, but you can give 110% of your best. And if you do that, uh, you're generally going to get to where you want to go. Now, you mentioned a couple faults at the very beginning when you were talking about the econ department. Are there any other professors or friends from your scholar days that you would like to give a shout out to? Sure. You know, I uh, I, I was lucky enough to uh, to be able to do a double major in economics and political science. And uh, in the economics world, I worked a great deal with David Shapiro, who is uh, still a professor emeritus of economics and uh, stay in touch with regularly. Uh, I had another gentleman who uh, I actually got to work with quite a while. His name was Philip Klein, and he was probably one of the the world's preeminent researchers of business cycles and economic fluctuations. And, and sadly, he passed away uh, about a decade ago. But you know, even after I left Penn State, we stayed in good touch. Uh, occasionally, would visit with him and his family and just really loved the research he was doing. Uh, we were sort of kindred spirits in that regard, and it was, it was wonderful. Um, I also had a, a great, great uh, you know, experience in the political science department. Uh, a lot of professors there, um, you know, were were exceptional in, in teaching political theory. I had, a, I had a professor by the name of Bob Laporte, who, uh, you know, was very skilled in sort of Southeast Asia politics, which I always found interesting and, and local governments as well. And uh, it was a, a great opportunity. And, and the nice thing about it is I've still kept in touch with a lot of them. I think that's important. They're always great folks to share a story with or maybe even reach out for a little bit of advice. So as I sort of said, even when you're talking about professional careers, you know, when, when you're a student and you're a young scholar, uh, find a few folks that you really like and enjoy and you'll have you'll have lifelong friendships with them. Is there any final advice that you want to leave students that maybe hasn't come through it in any other point in the conversation so far? Um, I think that what I would what I would leave a lot of the scholars out there with is, you know, think about what you're doing right now. Realize that it may be completely different from what you're going to do five or six years from now. Realize that that's okay. Take every opportunity that you possibly can to grow. One of those ways is, I think, to uh, to find a good mentor out there. Become as close as you can with them. Uh, understand, you know, where they've been successful, where where they need uh, some guidance too, because you'll be able to help them. And as I would always say, I know it's a little bit of a, a cliche, but travel as much as you can. Learn how the world works. Learn how different cultures are. Pick up a different language. Get a get a global perspective on life, uh, because there's uh, there's a tendency, I think, to live in our own little bubbles and. Uh, the best thing I think you can do for your career and your first job prospects and really that promotion is, is always be able to understand, you know, what makes people tick. How do they think about things? How do they approach a problem? And it's not always going to be the same way you do. So it's important to think about that and and really have as many different sort of centers of influence as you can go to to have different perspectives. Absolutely. Great advice. Love the shout out for our mission tenant of global perspective. You also mentioned mentoring, and we've talked about that quite a bit in our conversation. If a scholar wanted to reach out to you and take this conversation further, pick your brain, learn a little bit more from you, Kyle, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, absolutely. And I've actually done that for a few scholars and just a few uh, folks who have been students in the econ department over the years. Happy to do that. Um, you know, you're, you're welcome to, to shoot me an email uh, at ILS1011 at Mac.com. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn. You'll see me there, Kyle Morgan uh, at Key Private Bank in Buffalo, New York. Uh, happy to help anybody, uh, principally as you're thinking about going out there and getting that first job or evaluating some different offers or heck, if you want to learn how to fly, I'd be happy to get you into the right, uh, right places to do that. 
Well, you heard it from from Kyle. He can help you with a bunch of different things, and I strongly recommend that, like me, you connect with him on LinkedIn. Now, Kyle, as is tradition here on Following the Gong, I know you've listened, so you know what is coming. If you were a flavor of Berkey Creamery ice cream, which would you be? And most importantly, as a scholar alumnus, why would you be that flavor? Pumpkin. Uh, And don't throw me into the whole pumpkin coffee thing, because I don't like that. But... I love the pumpkin ice cream from the creamery, and I'll tell you why. Uh, My senior year, uh, I ended up meeting one of my closest and best buddies uh, at Penn State. First couple of days of class, I I was like, is this guy stalking me or something? Because we had uh, literally the entire same schedule, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And uh, we uh, sort of just started laughing one day. I'm like, you're in every class that I'm in. And this guy, his name is Bill Dunn. He said, yeah, I think we have the exact same schedule. So we thought, let's go get some ice cream and uh, and figure out how we can uh, attack some of the projects that we are given and things like that in, in a couple of classes. And uh, we uh, we went over the creamery. Uh, I had my, my typical uh, pumpkin ice cream. I don't know what the heck he actually had, but uh, it's a good memory of mine because one of my best lifelong friends, uh, we sort of started our our relationship over creamery ice cream, and I'm still really good friends with him and his son. We spend a few holidays together every once in a while, and uh, you know it's uh, it's a good thing. So don't 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 pick on me about the pumpkin, but it is my favorite flavor. Well, I'm always going to side in the apple uh, in the fall flavors, and I, I, by the point that this one has been published, I know we've already had we'll have had an episode with the apple pie flavor, so now we've got pumpkin covered. So either side on that on that fall flavor debate, you've got your you've got your representative here on following the gong. So I haven't had that one yet, but I'll have to try that next fall, Kyle. Yeah, I'm looking you, forward you to gotta that. try it. Kyle, uh, you are a relationship manager and VP at Key Private Bank in Buffalo, New York. Thank you so much for joining me today here on Following the Gong. Thank you, Sean, and all the best to you and all the scholars out there that uh, took the time to listen to this. Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. Please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Stoller alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at stolleralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are... Thank <laughs> you.